Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. Today, we are recording part three in our series on what's happening with the abortion debates in America, but more on that after this promo. If you enjoy listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to us on iTunes, would you consider dropping us a five-star rating and a review? This really will help others find our show. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations around our table would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public debates. If you know someone in your church, campus, or community who would enjoy this show, send them a link. We would love to welcome them around our table. In addition to iTunes, every episode of Capital Conversations can be found at ERLC.com and a lot of other podcast places, too. For this conversation today, we have invited our friend and coalition partner, Steve Aiden from Americans United for Life. Steve serves as Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Americans United for Life, overseeing all legal operations of America's most effective pro-life organization. Aiden is a highly experienced litigator, having appeared in court against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry dozens of times, and appointed by the attorneys general of six states to defend pro-life laws. Aiden secured court victories that upheld Arizona, preventing six abortion businesses from offering their services, applied Missouri's abortion laws to chemical abortion, and upheld the right of Louisiana regulators to shut down dangerous abortion facilities. Steve is a, a good friend and, and partner here in D.C. and the perfect person for us to welcome to the Capital Conversations Roundtable for this conversation on the abortion debates in America and specifically uh, the legal strategy for protecting life and the possible path to overturning Roe v. Wade. Steve, thank you so much for joining Travis, Stephen, and myself today. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us, Steve. Stephen, thank you so much for being willing to uh, to be on this episode when your when your voice is uh, is protesting against you. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, wonderful. So we're, when, we're when he texted me this morning saying that his voice uh, was gone, I I sort of just assumed it was an excuse and that it was going to be sort of like a. <laughs> I've um, got the but, black lung. Pop. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> but his his voice really is gone. It really is gone. But he's got a lot to contribute to this conversation, so we're thankful for him joining us here. Okay, so uh, we're in the middle of a series here on this podcast. This is this is part three. Uh, the previous episodes will be linked to in the show notes where you can listen to my conversation with Alabama columnist Dana McCain, who authored the really insightful piece that the abortion pendulum is swinging with these state laws, both the laws like the ones in New York, most recently now in Illinois, uh, that are on the pro-abortion side of this debate, and all of the heartbeat bills, as they're known, that are being passed in by, by 
pro-life legislatures in the Midwest and in the South. Multiple state governments have been enacting these new abortion laws, and, and in so doing, it's catalyzed new nationwide conversations about life, the unborn, women's autonomy, and, and pregnancy. And so we, we wanted to have uh, a conversation specifically about the legal future that's at stake for abortion laws in America. So, Steve, I, I want to begin this conversation with you about the history of abortion law in our country, both in the courts and related legislation. And I think where we ought to start is with Roe v. Wade. When was Roe v. Wade argued and decided, and what did that ruling do? Well, Jeff, Roe is worth a long discussion in and of itself, and the best thing I can do is refer your listeners to the masterwork, which is uh, written by our senior counsel for Americans United for Life, Clark Forsyth, entitled Abuse of Discretion. He goes through the justices' papers from 1971, 72, 73, and uh, really, uh, it wasn't White's uh, dissent, uh, a raw exercise of judicial power. Uh, and an inappropriate exercise of judicial oversight, you know, of, of constitutional oversight. Roe versus Wade came up to the Supreme Court in 1971. It was actually argued twice because of the absence of two justices on the court in 1971. And it was a procedural question. It had nothing to do with whether women have a fundamental right to abort their children. Uh, initially, it had to do with the relationship between federal courts and state courts and under what circumstances uh, federal courts should uh, defer to state courts, et cetera. But um, there was a small uh, number of justices who were determined to take the right of privacy that had been expressed by the Supreme Court in 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut and in a couple of subsequent cases and turn it into a full-blown right to abortion, and they would not let anything stand in their way to do so. The case was argued twice, and the upshot was in January of 1973, the Supreme Court issued Roe versus Wade, and it ruled that uh, there was a fundamental right for abortion uh, for women um, somewhere in the Constitution. And I say that without any uh, sheepishness because really they did cast about in the decision that was written by Harry Blackman for the court uh, looking for the right anchor for it. And they said, well, it might be in the Fourth Amendment right to privacy uh, against -hmm. against search and seizure. It might be in the Ninth Amendment. Uh, It might even be in the Tenth. But wherever it is, we think that it's broad enough to encompass a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. And that was the holding. Roe versus Wade was so broad and sweeping that it wiped off the books the abortion statutes in 49 states. Uh, and it was regarded for years as an extremely broad, extremely strong uh, articulation of a fundamental right to abort. The court only allowed for state regulation uh, after viability but allowing for requiring a, an exception for quote-unquote women's health, which was, according to the court, broad enough to include factors like uh, familial, economic, mm. social factors. So it really meant nothing. That's where you get the uh, unbridled uh, right to abortion on demand. Mm-hmm. It really was there yeah, in Just pure Roe. elective. Sure, yeah. in Roe and its companion case, specifically Doe versus Bolton, the court said that. So that's where you are in 1973, uh, for 10 years, that, that decision was so broad and sweeping that for 10 years, the Supreme Court 
backpedaled on the scope of the right that it had announced in Roe in 1975. It said that states actually did have the right, despite Roe, to require that only doctors can do abortions. Okay. Some courts had held otherwise. Uh, in 1980, uh, the court held that uh, there was no constitutional right to public funding of abortion in a series of cases upholding the Hyde Amendment that Congress had passed prohibiting the use of Medicaid funds for abortion, a case actually that Americans United for Life attorneys handled in the Supreme Court. So they they did furious backpedaling all through the 70s. And then into the 80s, you get into a kind of uh, detente where some uh, provisions are upheld, some are struck down. And then I didn't know. I don't know if you wanted to get to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, yeah, I, yet, but I, I could dive I, right into I, that. If you I want. do, I do. But but before we get there, sure. uh, so, so thinking back when when Roe was first decided, and and then you know you, you described some some uh, legal backpedaling that you know a very extensive uh, ruling. But then okay, yeah, the, you know there can be some regulations here around it. Okay, yeah, there's not a right to federal funding here because of the Hyde Amendment. So culture at the at the time when Roe was decided, there are many who who probably thought, oh, this is controversial now, but this sort of quote unquote, and I don't even know if the term pro-life was being used back then, but let's say the community that was, you know, that was on the other side of that issue, they'll just kind of go along to get along. It it I mean, they probably could have never imagined in that decade the March for Life, the thousands upon thousands of people that were uh, we're here this past January for for the March for Life, uh, and and we'll soon we'll soon be fifty years uh, post that decision, and I I anticipate that March will keep growing and it keeps getting younger every year. And so this sort of vibrant pro life community did that exist back then, or or not? It was nascent. Uh, Americans United for Life actually got started in 1971, two years before Roe versus Wade. Uh, National Right to Life was around. Uh, other state uh, pro life groups. Um, there were several states that had radically legitimized abortion. Washington, Hawaii, uh, New York was a destination for abortion at the time. I don't think there was really a large number of people who had a consciousness that abortion on demand and millions of abortions were about to break upon the nation via the Supreme Court ruling. Mm-hmm. Even the Roe decision itself, when it was announced, didn't cause a lot of popular comment. Uh, Some understood the import of it, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was only really well understood afterward. Um, There were constitutional scholars like John Hart Ely who said it was an absolute abomination as a constitutional uh, decision, as a matter of constitutional interpretation. Uh, And he, you know, a a, a pro-abortion law professor and others. Yeah. Um, But it began to build after that. I think the point is, Jeff, the interesting thing to me is Roe versus Wade didn't seal the deal. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, despite the justices' statements that it would finish the cultural debate in 1992, didn't. Mm-hmm. It only intensified it. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think anybody would have foreseen that the case was closed. They never sealed the deal for abortion on demand. Why is that? Well, I think the main reason is because it's counter to fact. It's counter to science. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultrasound was not generally available mm-hmm. in 1973. Mm-hmm. People didn't know uh, about life in the womb. They didn't right. know so, that it was human life. So and, this is where that just yeah. cluster of cells kind exactly, of Exactly, cluster uh, of cells. And mo- right. most people, I think, bought that because right. they didn't know any better. But right. with the advent of 
uh, ultrasound, as with my six children, they've seen their siblings on ultrasound before <laughs> right. they were born. You cannot right. tell them right. that those are not human right. beings, right. human lives. And a lot of people are like that. So we have science behind us. And I think that's a big part of the reason why they never sealed the deal. Right. So we talked about the 70s. We talked about we talked about the, the 80s. Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, when when was that case argued? And so so same question with Roe. What what did Planned Parenthood v. Casey do? Sure, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was decided in 1992. It had to do with a suite of laws that Pennsylvania had passed. Uh, one was a spousal notification requirement. Uh, another was a set of informed consent requirements. And the Supreme Court, at the behest, actually, of uh, the U.S. uh, Solicitor General and others, uh, determined to take up the question of Roe's viability. There was a lot of speculation uh, and expectation that the court would do so, even from 1989 in the Webster case. uh, There was some ink spilled by the justices and hand-wringing over how close the court had come to overturning Roe and Webster. So by 1992, there were a lot of people who expected that the court would do so. Okay. Justice Kennedy was new on the court. Uh, he was known as a uh, uh, as aligned with the pro-life view, uh, and there was expectation there. Uh, so there was a lot of disappointment, intense disappointment, when the Supreme Court actually came out with what we call a plurality opinion. There was no majority opinion that garnered most of the votes on the court, but a fractured decision in which the Supreme Court upheld Roe versus Wade in its uh, major intent, in its main thrust, which was the right to abortion. They did a couple of things. They shifted from a fundamental right to abortion in Roe to what they called a liberty interest Hmm. to terminate pregnancy under the 14th Amendment. So they anchored it in a different place. And they also said, importantly, that states have an important role to play in regulating abortion through through viability for the sake of the health and safety of the mother and after viability to express the state's interest in protecting human life. So they changed the nature of the contest. Unfortunately, a lot of people um, honestly uh, walked away from the movement at the time because they said, well, Roe will never be overturned. We're stuck with abortion on demand for our lifetimes and perhaps forever. And that was yet a time when um, there was more opportunity and more happening uh, than at any time. And since then, we've seen from 1992 to the present, the abortion rate in America has dropped by 40%, mm. uh, and millions of lives have been saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been tremendous. So, and we're going we're gonna to talk mostly about uh, the, the movement at the state level and how that might challenge uh, the, the current status quo at the federal level. But the status quo at the federal level has, has been in many ways uh, a, a stalemate in terms of sort of large legislative initiatives because you have because you have the the sort of case law history here of uh, Roe uh, and and Planned Parenthood v Casey so what do we make about legislation such as the Hyde amendment and abortion funding issues there there has been um there 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 has been a consensus there until until recently so i, I guess i'll ask this question in two parts what was that consensus with abortion funding issues uh, and, and the Hyde Amendment? Uh, and do we still see that consensus now? 
That's a leading question, because I know we do not. No, we don't. A Hyde Amendment passed uh, with overwhelming bipartisan support. Today, that's inconceivable, because the uh, Democratic Party, unfortunately, has adopted a platform that calls for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment right. and public funding for elective abortion. Right, right. So it's, it's a very different— um, uh, and, and the Hyde Amendment— Basically, was was passed. Uh, Henry Hyde, right? Was the senator's name? That's correct. Name? The congressman from New York. <laughs> oh, congressman. Uh-huh. My, my apologies. Uh, which which put a federal uh, a ban on federal funds from being used to pay for abortion. Sure, and it's been in the appropriations process. It's been a rider on appropriations uh, every year since I believe 1970, since the late 70s, at 78, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's critical. Uh, Studies by Dr. Michael New and others have shown that at least 2 million lives have been saved through Mm -hmm. the Hyde Amendment simply by not allowing uh, taxpayer funding for elective abortion. Right. So it's important both for conscience rights of Americans who don't want their taxpayer dollars to be spent on what they believe to be a grave moral wrong, but it's also important because it's actually saving saving human lives. Right. I think, you know, one of the, you know, Steve just mentioned that that the Hyde Amendment passed with broad bipartisan support. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things that we're seeing erode right now is the idea that this is a sensitive moral issue around which people can disagree. And we don't want, you know, we, the, the issue of federal funding implicates uh, people's taxes and the, the taxes that are collected by the government. And so it impl- implicates everybody. Um, you know, and since 19, well, I should say from 1976, 78, until 2016, there was broad consensus that that was a that was a good place for American public policy to land, to leave uh, a bit of a middle ground, or to create space for people's consciences. And as you pointed out, Steve, that's that is no longer the case. So I've asked this question of each of our guests here in this series uh, because I think it's important again to to define our terms that we're talking about. So I'll ask this question to all of you, Stephen. Uh, we'll we'll start with you, and then Steve, and then Travis. Uh, how do you define the term pro-life? Yeah, well, that's an important question. Um, I think for me, conceiving of myself as one who is pro-life emerges from a theological vision and imagination that is informed by the biblical text and what I believe God has said about um, about what life is. Life comes from him. So it begins in Genesis 1 for me. How that gets played out, I think, is what many people are referring to when they ask for definitions, right? What is it? What does your pro-life look like? Mm-hmm. How is it illustrated, demonstrated? Mm-hmm. And for me, I've always thought of myself as being one who affirms the dignity of life, wanting to protect it as something sacred, uh, wanting to commend it as something uh, worthy of all of our efforts to 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 uphold and defend um, and champion. Life is 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 precious. Life um, in, in in God's kindness and providence can be something that extends for quite a long time. And so, for me, to be pro life has always had a kind of from conception until life's natural end um, range. And so, it it has included conversations around the issue that we're discussing today, today at this table, but it has extended uh, to the full range in which. Um, Human life, and when I say that, life has got intended, flourishing, free, mm-hmm. um, certainly free to orient itself towards the worship of him. Um, a lot of things intersect with that reality. Right. And so I'm going to want to make sure that I'm consistent in the ways that I am. I'm speaking to the things that impinge upon that quality and right. idea of life. Right. Um, 
Steve, what about you? How do you define the term pro-life? Well, at Americans United for Life, we say that being pro-life means to welcome and embrace every member of the human family, all human beings. And that includes those in the womb and outside of it. It includes those at the end of life or in difficult uh, physical circumstances. Uh, That's why uh, we lead the opposition to suicide by physician. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a holistic view. Uh, It embraces life as a gift Uh, And it seeks to explore how to uh, empower people to experience and express that, uh, that welcoming of all human beings. Right. Travis? I I really like that, Steve, the welcome and embrace every member of the human family. I mean, I I don't think I have much to add uh, by way of foundation to what Steve and and Stephen have said. Um, What I would say is that I think as pro-life advocates— Part, not part of, but I would say is a basic on the on a basic level. What that requires of us is that we advocate for government to defend that God given dignity of human life, where yeah, right. wherever it's found, from birth to natural death. So, if we were living in a society where where murder was not outlawed, then advocating for murder laws would need to be part of right. our agenda. Right. You know, because yeah, go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to add something to that. One of the perversities of Roe versus Wade is that. The Supreme Court invented a constitutional right to abortion that was not found in the text of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Well, However, it was in the penumbra, in, in, in the, the emanations of the penumbra, <laughs> meaning yes, right. the uh, the rays of the shadows of the uh, Constitution. Um, but the right to life is right. The right to life is to be protected by government according to the Fourteenth Amendment, and yet the Supreme Court ignored that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, and and so. You know, I I, th- I mean, I agree with Stephen. I mean, I think for us for us to have integrity with our pro life ethic, then uh, I think being pro life or the implications of our pro life uh, ethic has you know has has a number of different forms across the way that we think about government policy and and so on. But you know, I, I mean, I also think that it's 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 important. It's right for us to have you know sort of a hierarchy of concerns. And I think abortion is a top priority for us because uh, in this context, the assault on human dignity is basic. It's foundational um, and it's extreme. But but I think we have to acknowledge that the difference between abortion and normalizing language. Uh, that refers to immigrants as dirt or that is indifferent to the separation of families who are waiting due process uh, is a difference of degree, not of kind. Uh, and and history has taught us over and over again that if we tolerate those, we could say smaller, we could say less severe uh, infringements or harms against God-given dignity, if we allow those, it will lead to darker things if left unchecked. And it always has. For this particular discussion about state laws, one state abortion law that uh, recently uh, did just uh, have its uh, day in court of sorts at the Supreme Court is Box v. Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. Uh, this is not a heartbeat bill. This is not a bill that uh, that sort of came in this most recent onslaught of abortion bans. This uh, this in many ways was a precursor to all of these other all these other bills. Uh, but SCOTUS just ruled on it. Travis, I'll come to you. What what was this uh, What was this bill? The Indiana bill. Uh, I know ERLC submitted an amicus brief mm-hmm. uh, to the court on this bill. What was it? Uh, and and how did the justices rule? Yeah. So the the Indiana there were two separate statutes at at issue here, and they 
did two different things. The first uh, piece of it was uh, uh, Indiana law required aborted fetal remains to be properly buried rather than treated as medical waste, which is uh, which is common uh, across the United States. And the second thing that the Indiana bill did was it prohibited discriminatory abortion. That is, uh, it prohibited the knowing provision of sex or race or disability selective Mm -hmm. abortions by abortion providers. And a lower court in this case in uh, Box v. Planned Parenthood had struck down both aspects of, uh, of the Indiana statute. And what the court did was kind of split those two issues apart and ruled on them a little bit differently. So the court upheld the Indiana law uh, on the first ground. That's the fetal remains issue. And you know, we talked earlier about uh, about Casey and you know the question of of undue burden. I think it's important to point out without getting too far into the details that will put our listeners to sleep that this this case didn't decide the question of whether these fetal remains bills, the prop the proper burial bills, can withstand. Uh, scrutiny under Casey's uh, uh, undue burden test. It didn't. It, it didn't decide on that question. Uh, but nevertheless, the court did uphold the statute, and so it it reversed the lower court, and that is that law is now law of land in Indiana. On the second question, the discriminatory abortion portion, the the court denied cert. In other words, they didn't. They were. They did not take up the appeal uh, in that. Uh, in that case. And so what that means is that the lower court, which had struck down that case, that lower court ruling will stand. Okay. Um, and I just maybe make two points about that. The first is that there's no Supreme Court precedent here, you know, so it isn't as though the Supreme Court has ruled favorably about that. And I think that there are a number of other states that have passed these these sorts of bills. I think we can expect, uh, I mean, what we'd be hoping for and smart people like Steve are working for is a circuit split where you have a circuit that upholds uh, those statutes and at which point um, once you've had appeals courts go in two different directions, it increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court's going to take up the case. The other thing I would point out about this is the truly sort of jaw-dropping concurrence written by Justice Clarence Thomas. So he he agreed that uh, this decision was not yet ripe, uh, as it were, for the court to for the court to consider. But his he he wrote a lengthy concurrence that links uh, this. Uh, discriminatory abortion statute to the question of eugenics. Um, you know, we we're talking earlier about the painful lessons of history, and I think Drew, uh, you know, made some some very interesting uh, and and really dark points about uh, about our culture uh, and about any culture that allows uh, abortions to be performed on the basis of sex or mm-hmm. race uh, or disability. So as a as, as somebody who's always thinking about how the policies that we advocate are being understood in in media and in the greater communications landscape, I I found the the headlines from uh, mainstream media outlets on the Indiana case interesting. I'll just read a couple of them here. Uh, New York Times said that uh, the Supreme Court sidesteps abortion question in ruling on Indiana law. Uh, Washington Post says Supreme Court compromise on Indiana abortion law keeps issue off its docket. But then uh, perhaps my my favorite, and I, and I don't really mean this sarcastically, was the Los Angeles Times headline, Supreme Court issues a go-slow signal in its first abortion decision of the year. Steve, talk to us a little bit more about uh Clarence Thomas's, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how this could sort of be a foreboding decision in a good way that he was saying this issue will be back. Uh, so that's almost in line with what the LA Times was saying that it was sort of a go slow. Uh, so, 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 what does it mean that he was concurring, but he was basically saying this issue will be back and it should be back? 
I think the decision uh, was important, extremely significant. We'll look back on this and say that was a watershed moment. Two reasons. Number one, in the majority decision, the court said, look, we have never said that provisions requiring that human fetal remains be treated as what they are, human, Mm -hmm. uh, is unconstitutional. Uh, The Seventh Circuit made that up and, as a result, reversed the Court of Appeals. That's a statement by the Supreme Court that, in the margins, they, the lower courts have to play by the rule book they get from the Supreme Court on abortion, and they can't make it up out of whole cloth. Uh, in fact, you get a dissent from Justice Ginsburg that said, well, the last time we pronounced on this three years ago in Hellerstedt, we said that it was a balancing test and that, essentially, all the judges uh, in the federal system could opine on any uh, abortion law and decide whether it was uh, on balance uh, better or worse for women's uh, reproductive freedom. But that's not where the court is right now. The court is, first of all, pulling the states and abortion advocates back to its own case law and saying, you've got to play within the lines, essentially. And that's a very good thing. It's going to limit a lot of actions that the abortion lobby has tried to bring in the last few years. Uh, The second uh, thing is what you alluded to, Jeff, and that is the, I would say, explosive uh, (laughs) concurrence by Justice Clarence Thomas. As an African-American, Justice Thomas is bringing up in the Supreme Court for the first time by a justice the understanding of the uh, the decimation that abortion has uh, has wrought on the African American community in the U.S. and he uses the term "black genocide." Uh, he cites statistics. He calls out Planned Parenthood and uh, its leaders, including the former president Alan Guttmacher, uh, whose uh, name uh, is on the Alan Guttmacher Institute, the right. primary pro-abortion research group. Right. And he says, "You are eugenicists." Uh, the move for Birth control, the move for abortion on demand is eugenic in its inception and in its nature, and it is decimating hmm. the African-American community. That, was, uh, that will be seen as a watershed. He's brought an issue up in the court and thrown it on the laps of abortion advocates and said, deal with this, and uh, it will be, um, I think, tremendous going forward. We all owe him a debt of thanks. What happens next? <laughs> how how uh, could a heartbeat bill uh, like the ones we've seen passed in Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, and Missouri, could those bills uh, be on the docket soon at the Supreme Court? Uh, what what sort of is their strategy for for? Let me start with this: Is the strategy overturning Roe v. Wade with all of these heartbeat bills? That is the stated strategy of many state legislators in these states. Uh, They want to poke a finger in the eye of the Supreme Court and force it to consider the continuing viability of Roe versus Wade. And and how would that happen? What happens next and how it would happen would be that the federal trial courts will consider the constitutionality of these provisions. They will all uh, receive federal lawsuits challenging their, their, their validity. Uh, they will all, I assume, go up to the circuit courts of appeals. Because we are a nation of laws, the trial courts and the circuit courts of appeals will have to rule based on the case law supplied by the Supreme Court, based on precedent. They will unanimously say that 
uh, these laws are in violation of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey because they prohibit a woman from seeking an abortion early in gestation. Um, there may be some ink spilled, as there have been by uh, some judges, on uh, whether Roe is a good rule, whether it's uh, a workable rule, whether it's even understandable. Uh, and that will help uh, raise the issue to the Supreme Court. But when you get to the Supreme Court, Jeff, of course, the Supreme Court doesn't take the overwhelming number of uh, requests for review that it receives. It rejects 98% of all petitions it receives, only accepting about 2%. So first of all, a state like, uh, like uh, Mississippi or Missouri would have to persuade the Supreme Court to take the case. Here's how that works. It takes four votes of the nine justices on the Supreme Court to decide to hear a case. That means that four justices have to bet that they can get at least one more justice to go with them when the case is heard and decided. Otherwise, they won't take the case because they don't want to lose. In the case of abortion, that means you have to have the four pro-abortion justices on the court betting that they can pull over another justice, probably the chief justice because he's regarded as a swing vote, uh, in affirming the rule of Roe versus Wade. I don't think they're going to take that bet. I don't think they don't want think so. to. No, I don't think they will. Be. Why not? Uh, even, well, th there are a lot of observers that say, and I agree, that probably the chief justice uh, is not ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. He would like another pro-life vote on the court, and I'd like to see that myself, of course. Um, he's sure. very wary and we. has shown, yeah, his, his commitment to the history uh, and the integrity, uh, the public view of the Supreme Court, and he's very careful about how he expends his political capital. But I don't believe that the four pro-abortion justices, by the same token, would want a decision that's a fractured, brokered decision in which there's uh, criticism of Roe. And that would inevitably happen, I think, uh, if the court reviewed a heartbeat bill or a personhood bill, one of these other early gestation bills. And so I don't believe that the court will take one of these cases involving early gestation bans. I think the court, is, as it did last week in the Indiana case, will start step by step. It will say, let's play by the rules as we have before and will again. Uh, it has already signaled that it will take a case out of Louisiana uh, to decide whether Louisiana can require abortionists to have uh, what are called admitting privileges, the ability to admit a patient into the hospital ER uh, and have her care and care for her and follow up uh, when an emergency occurs. And we know that mm -hmm. those happen quite a bit. It happened actually uh, in excess of uh, 70 times uh, just at the, Louis the, um, the Planned Parenthood in St. Louis alone over a 10-year period. So those emergencies happen, and they happen regularly. Uh, okay. And so the Supreme Court will now decide probably, in the Louisiana case, uh, whether states can require abortionists to abide by the same rules as all other outpatient doctors abide right. by. Right. So, so what are the various legal outcomes that could happen with these heartbeat bills? They're going to be stayed. They're going they'll – be, they'll be challenged. Could the Supreme Court then just deny cert over and over again if 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 neither the four sort of pro-abortion justices or the four sort of pro-life justices decide to to uh, to to take that bet? We just kind of get status quo stalemate still. 
Look at uh, a case out of Arkansas and another one out of uh, North Dakota. Both cases involved uh, early gestation bans. The Supreme Court denied review, but uh, there were uh, concurrences written by uh, judges on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, explaining how difficult Roe is to apply, calling for its uh, reversal, um, explaining how it's unworkable, uh, and asking the Supreme Court to return the issue of abortion to the states. Our staff, and especially our, our senior counsel, Clark Forsyth, have compiled judicial opinions critical of Roe versus Wade, and they number in the dozens. That is an overwhelming number, if you mm -hmm. think about it, because the as we say, the Roe Ro versus Wade law has been on the books since 1973, and yet the the drumbeat for reconsidering that case grows louder and louder every year. Not just uh, the hundreds of thousands that march in the March for Life every year growing larger, but the number of judges on the federal bench who are calling for reconsidering Roe. And so for that reason, I think that it okay. will be reconsidered. I just don't believe that uh, the Supreme Court will use one of these early gestation okay. bans uh, to consider the question. But we're but we're getting the ball uh, moving in the right direction. Unquestionably, we right. are. Yeah, right. it is moving. Right. So, so and the analogy I like to use is if you've got an effective wishbone offense, don't use the Hail Mary on every play. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Just um, grind it out. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to grind it out. Um, okay, so let's fast forward. Uh, we're right there next to uh, next to the end zone, carrying, carrying the football metaphor. Roe versus Wade gets overturned. What happens? There's a lot of misunderstanding here. Sure there is. And I think it's important to ask, to ask that question because we'll often see polling on CNN, for example, that, oh, Roe versus Wade, you know, is, is very, very popular. Uh, and I think, you know, when you just sort of poll people, oh, do you want to see Roe v. Wade upheld? Uh, sure, yeah, I don't know, because I've been told that the apocalypse would happen if it gets overturned. Uh, so two-part question, would the apocalypse happen if Roe versus Wade gets overturned? Uh, and if not, what would happen? No, certainly not. Uh, <laughs> what would happen would be that the question of the regulation of abortion as a medical procedure would be returned to the states. In about one-third of the states, uh, there would still be strong permission for abortion essentially on demand. Places like California, which has the largest number of abortions, New York, uh, other states. Uh, about one-third of the states on the other end of the spectrum uh, would move to ban it. Uh, and probably face lawsuits under state constitutional provisions, but uh, even in those states, most of them would not ban it outright, but would leave room for uh, exceptions and other things. And then about in the middle, the question would be unsettled. It would be a political fight in the legislatures. It would be a judicial fight in the courts. Another thing that would happen the day after Roe versus Wade is overturned is that Planned Parenthood's lawyers would file lawsuits in at least 13 or 14 states arguing for a state constitutional right to abortion. They already see the handwriting on the wall. They're already moving in that direction. Increasingly, they filed lawsuits in state courts, which is why the pro-life movement has to have a ready defense uh, assisting some very terrific uh, state attorneys general out there who are defending uh, restrictions on abortions like uh, Ken Paxton in Texas and um, uh, the uh, Louisiana uh, Solicitor General and uh, Attorney General, and there are many, many others out there. That's, I, if I may say so, that is one of the most encouraging things that I have seen in the pro-life movement, at least from the legal perspective, 
uh, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years is that for the first time, you've got hosts, probably over uh, 15 uh, states that are staffed up and ready, willing, and able to defend abortion laws. That wasn't the case before, but you've got some very able seasoned litigators uh, in court determined to take this question to the Supreme Court. Mm. We've got to give them all the support we can. How do we support them? So somebody listening to this podcast and they've just heard us outline, oh, this whole abortion question overturning road, this isn't going to happen like next week or next month or next election. Like we, we've just outlined that it's it's difficult and it's incremental, but we're moving in the right direction. Uh, how can our listeners help us continue to move in the right direction? Well, they can do a couple of things. First of all, um, they can support uh, effective uh, pro-life organizations that are coming alongside the attorneys general and, and promoting, pushing these cases, equipping them with uh, medical expert testimony and briefing, things like that. Uh, that's all very important. I get calls from folks in California and New York uh, saying, you know, our states have just gone crazy for abortion on demand. What can we do? And I always say, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Because, for example, New York, which passed the most pro-abortion law uh, anywhere um, a couple of months ago, the actual abortion figures for New York continue to drop like a rock, no matter what New York does to promote abortion on demand. Uh, no regulation of abortion facilities. Uh, they pay for abortion in Medicaid. Everything they're doing, mm-hmm. abortion keeps dropping like a rock. And that's because of two things, the great work of pregnancy resource centers mm-hmm. and the great work of witnesses on the sidewalk. And I mean that term witness in a spiritual sense, mm-hmm. the people who pray, observe, see what's going on, in the local abortion facility uh, are doing God's work. Uh, that's been a huge difference. Whenever New York gets brought up in their pro-abortion bill that was passed, the the site that is just etched in my memory and comes to mind every time New York gets brought up is how at the, at the passage of that bill, uh, the state lit up uh, One World Trade Center uh, in, in pink to, to celebrate uh, this new expansive abortion rights law. But at the base of that tower are the 9/11 memorials, uh, and if you ever if you've ever been there, you you may have noticed that around around the the waterfalls where both of the twin towers stood uh, are the names of those American lives that we lost that day. And for the I, I'm not sure the exact number, but it's it's in the double digits. It's somewhere around 10 to 15 for the 10 to 15 uh, women who were in those towers and and were killed that day during that attack. Uh, 10 to 15 of them were pregnant, and at that very memorial where they celebrated this new abortion law reads the name of that pregnant woman, and and this is a quote, in, etched into the concrete there, and her unborn child. So there's there there was this horrible uh, sort of dichotomy between the humanity recognized of those unborn American lives that we lost that day on 9-11 and one world trade awash in pink yeah. to celebrate abortion, and right. that you know it's something that our that our boss here, uh, Russell Moore, says often. The our conscience will not be seared forever on this question. No, that is true, uh, and we remember what the prophet said: "Woe to those who call good evil and yeah. evil good." This is a perfect example. We've got to end the schizophrenia, whereby we blindly believe with one part of our brain that life in the womb is whatever the mother determines it to be. 
that's an insanity that we've got to depart from. We've got to keep emphasizing that life in the womb is human life. These are human beings. They're a member of the species Homo sapiens. That's right. Um, That's right. Science is on our side. Well, we can't can't, uh, conclude this conversation without talking about the absolute insanity happening with corporations like Disney and Netflix threatening to pull out of Georgia because of their heartbeat bill. I, I have to say, guys, this this just seemed so crazy to me. Uh, Travis, I know it's something that that we've talked about that, like, uh, I, I think the number you used was five years ago. This would have been unimaginable. I mean, totally unimaginable for corporations to get involved in the abortion question like this. I mean, it's just, it's totally crazy. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. Uh, I think it's, it's yet another sign of how polarized our country is. I think it's another sign of how this issue has even become partisan. You know, the, the, the idea that any corporation would have waded into, into the life issue or, or to the abortion issue even five years ago, I think, would have been very difficult to imagine. Most corporations try to stay away from, stay away from this issue. You know, I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, Steve, you may have better insights than us in terms of, you know, whether the abortion lobby is, is pushing uh, corporations into taking these positions, whether it's happening organically. I don't know the answer to that question. But to go back to something that you said just a minute ago, um, about you know what what do we do after Roe you know describing this as a as a political it's this you know we're we, we're headed towards a hearts and minds sort of moment and I'd, so I think you know in this context we shouldn't miss the opportunity to see that either I mean in this you know this Disney Netflix boycott you know is a is a certainly is a hearts and minds moment uh, for the other side I think that it's an example of increasing desperation on the part of pro abortion forces hmm. uh, they are marshalling their supporters in the corporate world uh, and in the medical world. For example, for the first time that I'm aware of, the American Medical Association was a plaintiff, a party in in at least one case, challenging the administration's new rule requiring that Title X federal family planning funds not be used for elective abortion, requiring that if they take family planning funds, they have to bifurcate all their physical facilities, abortion and family planning from one another and all their financial components. Uh, This is the American Medical Association arguing that because it infringes on the so-called right to abortion, uh, that it must be illegal. So they are marshalling their forces, uh, you know, the, um, the elements of culture and medicine and law that uh, they can marshal because they are getting desperate. They see that the day of Roe versus Wade is at hand. Um, so that's a that's a good thing. Even this New York law was a result of kind of a recognition. They suddenly woke up and said, well, there have been hundreds of pro-life laws passed <laughs> in the states yeah. in the last few years. What's our response? And they realized, well, we don't really have a law because we never saw an abortion regulation that we liked. So we're not going to compromise. Instead, we're going to offer this New York-style annihilation of all the abortion mm-hmm. regulations on the books. And so they've tried to get it through different states. It's, it's died in some states, but uh, it's been passed in New York and passed in Vermont. I'm, my guess is they may pass it in one or two more uh, states, and that will be it, of the most yeah. uh, abortion-serving states, and that will exhaust their options uh, at the state legislative policy level. So. Okay. Stephen, what do you make of this uh, of this Mickey Mouse controversy, boycotting these abortion regulations? My one-year-old is wearing a Mickey Mouse outfit today. So uh, when you said that, it just conjured that. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's it's interesting to see um, the terms on which this discussion is being had in our culture. And, um, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that on the one hand, there's a sense in which people on either side of this issue are kind of talking past one another. On the other hand, they're they're talking while standing on two completely different foundations. And so one side will have a, a rhetoric and employ language and verbiage that speaks of kind of rights and bodily autonomy and, and, and things that, again, kind of incite the moral imagination to consider, you know, that sounds about, that sounds plausible. Um, but as Steve said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's, it's a kind of schizophrenic move that is made because while those things are being affirmed, it is at the same time concurrently denying a very but so equally absolute kind of norms. Um, one of the things that I, I'm desirous of seeing, and Travis mentioned this, is that this conversation become less politicized and that we try to, I'm thinking, talking to particularly Christians at this point, try to think about how best to meet their interlocutors on um common grounds so that the discourse um, can proceed in a way where people are talking about the same kinds of principles. And one of the strategies for me that I found most effective is trying as best as I can to affirm what is commendable in the reasoning and the and the and the and the affirmations of my opponent and demonstrate that along those same lines or in that same wheelhouse of normative principles lies some of the things that I'm fighting for and and trying to then talk about perhaps consistencies and inconsistencies uh in the ways in which we deploy those principles i think christians have 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 gotten better at realizing that in many ways their interlocutors are not starting on a kind of God-conscious uh, Judeo-Christian. Um, right. That that framework is just not there for it right. for many people. Um, and so we weren't even talking about uh, how these corporations are now engaging right. in uh, this this discussion. Understand that that is from an entirely different kind of worldview. Right. And so the ways in which I'm engaging it at the level of idea needs to be adjusted uh, so that I can be more effective. But it is it's, right. it's disalarming to see. Right. Um, but you, you certainly see strategy behind it. Right. Um, and I'm hoping that um, that reasonable discourse will prevail um, and not just these acts that kind of uh, serve to try to shock the conscience yeah. uh, in order to side with a particular view. Last question to the table. How should pastors and church leaders lead their congregations in this in this cultural moment where abortion is at the forefront of much of our public discourse? Yeah, I know there's a concern that abortion is perceived as a political issue. Um, I've always believed that if a pastor speaks about the sovereignty of God and creation, uh, both at the individual and the cosmic level, and um, the nature of uh, humanity, human beings in the womb, uh, how we all have a purpose in God's design, uh, that's the pro-life argument. Um, there's not much more you need to say, and I hope that more of them do that to you know, encourage folks to understand that. God has created each one of us unique, special, with a purpose. Uh, that is the pro-life ethos right. right there. That's right. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's certainly right, what Steve just shared. Um, and it's the not only embodiment of that ethos, but the comfort level in speaking out of that ethos. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important to realize is that we talk about a day when uh, perhaps Roe v. Wade will be overturned. 
Yes, that in many ways ends a kind of conversation, but a whole host of other conversations then commence at that point. You think about the legal history of the United States, things like 54 Brown v. Board of Education. Yes, that ended a particular conception of sanctioned segregation, but then that started a whole host of work that needed to be done in terms of realizing how do we now live together now that the country has said constitutionally that segregation is not is not constitutional. Um, I think Christians need to be thinking about that in the same kind of way, that if this day ever comes, then I don't dis- I don't get to go sit on my couch now and say, yeah, you know, we showed them. Yeah. Uh, no, the, yeah. The, the discourse then begins, and you have the obligation of now commending an ethic and a worldview and a lifestyle, and not only commending it with your words, but with your hands, That's right. that you're actually able to help build a society in which the affirmation of life can show itself to be sustainable in the way that we've been talking about for the past several decades. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a fight that we're all in as believers. We cannot avoid, we're all called to defend life in many different realms. The fight against uh, overdose, the fight against suicide, yeah. uh, they're all part and parcel of the same culture of death, and we're not exempt. We have to get in the fight and uh, work with the Spirit and do our best. Yeah, yeah. I, to it. I, just to pick up on one thing that Stephen said, you know, in terms of figuring out how how to live together with people who we disagree with, I think one of the one of the peculiarities of our current moment, as divided as we are on this question of the sanctity of human life, as divided as we are, there is a sense in which our disagreements are not really live fire, not democratically. And our, I, I think that in in a post row world, I think we have to recognize that the divisions won't they'll become deeper because these questions will become salient, real political questions about what does the regulation of abortion uh, look like in our context. And so, my opinion is no longer just an abstract question about this Supreme Court decision that no, n- none of us have any agency to to do anything about, but rather. My opinion now has legs because I'm electing people who are uh, who are going to my state house and actually doing something about it. And so, you know, I think for you know for pastors who you know, Stephen, you uh, Steve, you mentioned this you know just a minute ago. You know, a lot of pastors shy away from these issues because we see them as political. Look, everything is political. Everything is theological. Um, everything has a moral dimension to it. There is no uh, there is no secular sphere, particularly with these issues. And so. You know, I think that it's it's important for us to uh, to to develop the muscle now because we are surely going to need it uh, if if Roe is overturned. Well, this is really good, uh, Steve. Thank you so much for joining our roundtable today, and you know, we we appreciate you being here with us for this conversation. But we also appreciate the work of Americans United for Life. Where can folks go to learn more and keep up with your work and learn more about AUL? Well, thank you, Jeff, Travis, Stephen. It was a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, as always, they can go to our website, www.aul.org. Uh, and uh, I want to thank your listeners and thank our supporters for all they do to protect life as well. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us, Steve. This My is pleasure. great. Thank you. It's really great. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, and thanks also to you for joining us today. And thanks also to Stephen Harris for fighting through uh, his, his cold. He's, to, he's not done to speaking be either. To, he's got a, yeah, he's got he's got a speaking, speaking engagement engage. later on this afternoon. That's not going to happen. Oh. Not, that I'm not going to step in and do for him. That's not going to happen. <laughs> 
Resources from this conversation are available at erlc.com to equip you and your church.